Turn with me once again to John's Gospel, chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning at verses 15 through 18. And Lord willing, this morning we will complete the prologue, the first 18 verses of John's Gospel. John chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. The title of the message this morning is simply, Jesus is Greater. Look at verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. Let's bow our heads this morning. Our prayer continues to be that we would see Christ more clearly than ever. And having seen him more clearly, we would believe upon him more richly and savor him more than ever before. Well, let's make that our prayer this morning as we come to this word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your word about your beloved son. Lord, your great desire for your people is for us to love Jesus as much as you do. And Lord, we, we just confess we don't. No matter how great our love is, we don't love him as much as you do. There's room to grow deeper in our knowledge of Christ, in our experience of Christ, and in our living upon him. There's room, there's much room. So, Father, we pray that today you would even use this text to remind us of the supremacy of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus, that we would see not only what John saw about it, but that, Lord, our hearts would embrace it ourselves, that there is nothing greater than Jesus, and that even as we leave here today and enter into a new week ahead of us, we would live upon this truth. Nothing compares to Christ. Knowing Jesus, there is no greater thing. And that we would savor him and desire him and enjoy him and be conformed to him. Father, help us this day. Send your spirit. We can't do these things. No sermon can do this thing. You do these things through your word and the power of your spirit. Show us Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we said at this outset uh, of our study of the book of John, the first 18 verses are the prologue, the introduction. John kind of sets the stage. He introduces themes that he's going to be returning to throughout his book. If you've ever been to an opera, if you've ever been to maybe a Broadway show, usually before the, the, the show begins, they'll be playing music while you're sitting there. And as you watch the show, it may resonate. Like, hey, I heard, that's the song they were playing at the beginning. It kind of introduces you to the songs you're going to be hearing. And that's what John is doing here in the prologue. He's giving us a taste of what's to come. And, and these first 18 verses have been full of abundant truth. And they're serving us well. John wants us to believe, to live upon Christ, uh, that Christ is, Jesus is the Christ. And in these first 18 verses... Man, he is showing us the beauty, the majesty, even the mystery of the doctrine of Jesus. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to flourish as we go on. 
but he is really setting the stage here. What we saw last week uh, as we entered into verse 14 is that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, became a man. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He came and lived among us. The tabernacle being in the Old Testament, the place where the people of God went to meet with God, now in the New Covenant. Place is insignificant. Let this encourage you as we meet here in a performing arts center. Place is insignificant. Building is insignificant. It doesn't matter. We meet God in a person, in Jesus Christ. We come face to face with the God-man. Jesus of Nazareth, who is the radiance of the glory of God, the pre-existent eternal word, who is one with the Father yet distinct from the Father, who is life and light, who shines in the darkness. We have this one, and through this one we meet with God. And now we come to these final verses here in verses 15 through 18 of John's prologue. And all John is doing here is putting a cap on things and he's magnifying Jesus. He's magnifying the greatness of Jesus for us. And he does so through witnesses. Three, in fact, in these verses. Three witnesses that he's going to communicate to us this simple message. Jesus is greater than anything. Three witnesses. To show us whatever Christ can be compared to. Anything. You fill in the blank. Anything. Whatever you can compare Christ to. Christ is greater. Christ is superior to all things, to all people. Because Jesus inherently is greater. And he's going to use three witnesses to persuade our hearts of this truth. Let's jump right into these three. Number one. The testimony of of John the Baptist. The testimony of John the Baptist. And the testimony of John the Baptist is this. Jesus Christ is greater than the greatest man who's ever lived. Christ is greater than the greatest man who's ever lived. Look at verse 15 with us. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, we have to be very clear here. John, the author of the Gospel of John, here when he talks about John, is referring to John the Baptist. In fact, just as we have said at the very beginning, John, the writer of this book, never references himself. Anytime John, the author of the Gospel of John, speaks of John, it's always John the Baptist. It speaks out of the humility of John. He's exalting Christ. This is not about him. This is about Christ. Every reference in John's gospel that refers to John is always John the Baptist. We learned in verse 7 about John the Baptist that God sent John the Baptist as a witness to bear witness about the light. The light being Jesus Christ. That all might believe in Christ. So John's sole purpose was to come as an evangelist for Christ, to, to set the way, to prepare the way for the, uh, the Messiah, to kind of herald the arrival, a king is coming, a king is coming, to blast the trumpet, the king is near. That's John the Baptist's whole purpose. Now, in order to understand the significance of what John said, there's a couple of things we need to know about John the Baptist. 
particularly his relation to Jesus. Number one, they were cousins, right? They were cousins on Mary's side. In fact, they were born six months apart. Now, who's older, John the Baptist or Jesus? John the Baptist. So by six months, John the Baptist was older. He was born first. Now, here's what's significant. In those days, the highly, the high, widely held belief was that those who were born first in time were preeminent, right? The firstborn son, right, through the Old Testament, we're, we're aware that's the one who gets the, the birthright. The one who's born first in time had greater preeminence. So to the naked eye, who would have greater supremacy or preeminence? John the Baptist or Jesus? John the Baptist, because he was born first. Not only that, John the Baptist began his ministry first. So he would have had more of a following to the naked eye. It, even when Jesus came onto the scene, it would have looked like John the Baptist is the more impressive figure. He had the better following. To the naked eye, John the Baptist was greater. Yet John's constant, passionate testimony about Jesus was what? No, no, Jesus is better than me. John bore witness and verse 15 says he cried out. Meaning he, he's crying out with an urgent message. Don't miss this. What? This was he of whom I said. He's talking about Jesus here. He who comes after me, surprise, surprise, ranks before me. You would think I rank before him because I came before him. But no, he who comes after me I was born first, he comes after me, ranks before me. What's he saying there? Jesus is greater. And why is Jesus greater than John the Baptist? John, I mean, you were born first. You had ministry first. Why is Jesus greater than you? He says, because he was before me. Now, can you imagine those in that day? I mean, John the Baptist may be losing some credibility here. His mental state may be in question. What do you mean he was before you? We know for a fact you're older, your ministry began sooner. Two ways. Jesus is before John the Baptist. Number one, in his pre-existence. In his pre-existence. John was indeed born in the flesh before Jesus. But what have we learned about Jesus? Going back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, preexistent. So Jesus did, in fact, come before John in time. Jesus is preexistent. John knew this. Those around John don't know this about Jesus. And John is declaring what John is not, preexistent, eternal, Jesus is. And the second way that Jesus is before John is in preeminence. John knows what John the gospel writer knows in verse 1. Jesus is God. In the beginning was the word. He was with God. He was God. He knows. This is why even in, in, in the womb, John the Baptist leapt with joy when he came into the, uh, into the presence of his cousin while in Mary's womb. By the work of the Spirit, he knew he was in the presence of God. 
And so what makes John's testimony here so remarkable is not just that it was so different from what the people would have expected. What makes John's testimony here about the greatness of Christ so impressive is what Jesus said of John in Matthew chapter 11. There Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of, uh, born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus himself said, no one is greater than John the Baptist. Except that John the Baptist, from this high and lofty place of the, by Jesus' own testimony, the greatest man who has ever lived, that one now says, there is one greater. It's Jesus. Jesus is the greatest man who has ever lived. And so, John the Baptist's testimony here, there it is, coming from the lips of the greatest man who ever lived. There's none greater than Jesus. That's the testimony of John the Baptist. Do you see that? This is not just some, some again, we're not ranking people, but some just Joe on the street saying there's none greater than Jesus. This is the one Jesus, who Jesus is truth, said there's none greater than John the Baptist. That one says no one can compare to Jesus. He's before me. He ranks higher than me. Jesus is greater. John the Baptist is saying to us, there's never been a greater hero. There's never been a more amazing person, a more wonderful person, a more caring person, a wiser person, a more intelligent person, a purer person, a more holy person. There's never been a more beautiful person. There's never been a more spiritual person. There's never been a truer person. Jesus by John the Baptist, the greatest man Jesus said that lived in that day. Jesus is the greatest man ever. That's the first testimony. Jesus is greater. Number two, not only the testimony of John the Baptist, there's a second testimony. And this is where you and I come into the story a little bit. It's the testimony of our lives. Christ is greater than all of our needs. The testimony of our lives. Christ is greater than any and all of our needs. Look at verse 16. John, the gospel writer, says, and from his fullness, from Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Who's the we that we talk about? From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Well, the we there is the we of verse 12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, they received the rights to become children of God. That's who the we are. We who have believed, we who have received. And you may, we've spent, uh, at least for the last two weeks, a pretty substantial amount of time asking the question, how does an individual go from verses 10 and 11, which is the light has come into the world and didn't want him, hated him, rejected him. He came to his own people and his own people rejected him. How do you go from verses 10 and 11, nobody wants Jesus, to verse 12, to those who believed, received the rights to become children of God? 
And we spent both weeks talking about the answer to that is the grace of the new birth. That's the only way somebody goes from loving sin, loving darkness, hating light, hating Christ, to hating darkness, hating sin, but loving Christ and loving the light. There's no other explanation for how a soul can go from verses 10 and 11 to verse 12 other than the grace of the new birth. Grace is the only explanation for the Christian life. Grace, a, a wretched soul that the light has come into the world and the wretched soul that says, get out of here. Don't want you. Have no need for you. I hate you because you expose what I love. What a wretched soul. How does that wretched soul change? Grace invades that wretched soul. Grace seeks out that wretched soul that will never, ever seek the light. We were lost in darkness and grace sought us out. We were blind to the beauty of Christ. We hated it. And grace gave us eyes to see. Grace gives us the forgiveness of sins for rejecting such a glorious light, such a glorious Christ. Grace breaks our bondage to darkness and gives us freedom to pursue the light. Grace gives us a heart to fear God when once we hated God. We are by nature anxious, worrisome, but grace relieves that. We all battle hopelessness. Grace gives us hope. The point here, the whole of the Christian life from start to finish is grace. The work of God in the soul of man, it's grace. That's the teaching of the entirety of the Bible. From Genesis 3, when God announces the curses, yet even in the midst of the curse promises a seed of the woman. If there's going to be any hope for humanity, it will not be anything humanity does to fix the problem. The grace there is, oh, by the way, the cursed woman will bear a seed. And that's grace. Your only hope is grace. And we can fast forward through, think back to our study, the book of Revelation, and how the promise of things will end. It's all of grace from beginning to end. That's the experience of every true believer. It's all of grace. There's a man in particular who knew this well. A man by the name of John Newton. Who wrote a song. We're very familiar with it. We just sang it. Amazing grace. Newton in penning that hymn, looked at his own life. And you'd have to know the biography of Newton to know his depravity. He was a filthy wretched, a filthy wretch. Deplorable things he did as a seaman, going from port to port. There's a stigma, I guess, you think about. Newton personified it to a T. Newton was a horrendous individual, and he looked at his life, who he once was, and who he 
then was in Jesus Christ from a godless man who did not care to now one who hated the, everything he used to love, but now loved Jesus with all of his heart. And how could he explain that? Newton, by his own admission, said, I did nothing. I was walking around living my sinful life. I had no desire to do anything but what I loved. And the next thing I know, my life has changed. I didn't do anything. So how did he explain the change? You can go and meditate upon the hymn, Amazing Grace, because he said, that's the only explanation. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And you can go and read his biography and fill in the, the mystery of what that wretchedness looked like. Amazing grace. In that song, he says, from conversion, it was all of grace that saved a wretch like me. When he thought about the Christian life and the life he was now living, he said it was all amazing grace. We just sang about it. Through Many dangers, toils, and snares, he says, well, through all the trials of life. It's grace that gets us through. Through the struggles, Newton says he has with doubts and the need for divine promises. In the song, he said, his hope, my, uh, his hopes, or his word, my hope secures. It's grace, the grace of his word that secures my hopes. Through the need for protection and spiritual battle, Newton knew that well, just like we do. What did, what did Newton say was amazing grace? He, my shield, he will my shield and portion be. It's all grace. Through the aging process and facing death, right, we all face that. He says, when this flesh and heart shall fail, his hope is amazing grace. His ultimate hope for even when this life is over and eternity, he says the earth shall soon dissolve like snow. That's amazing grace. The anticipation of standing face to face before the triune God, he calls it by amazing grace, a life of joy and peace. And life in eternity. The promise of it, clinging to it, it's amazing grace. But God who calls me here below will be forever mine. He called me here below by amazing grace and my hope is that forever he will be mine. It will be grace as well. From start to finish, Newton looked at the Christian life, his own Christian life and said, it's grace. That's all I've got is grace. It's the only explanation. The Christian life is start to finish grace. But let me stop here for a minute and preach Christ to our hearts, I hope pastorally, as I, I need it. We live in a day today that grace has become a thing. Like grace is, it, it's almost like a, one commentator talks about it, as something we get from God, like a coin or something. Right? Go, Lord, give me grace. And it, it's like some kind of currency he gives to get through the day. This day, I, I give you, you know, what, what are we, uh, fresh grace every morning. So here's, here's your grace. You've got it for the day. It's going to be sufficient for your every need. It's like a thing we carry around with us. That's kind of the, the idea that we carry around with us. One of the things John Newton, on the heels of the gospel writers, talks often about is that grace is not a thing, it's not a substance. 
It's not an aura. Grace is a person. Grace is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. God gives us grace. What did we read, read about in John chapter 1? That grace is a person. He gave us His Son, Jesus, who is, in the passage we just read, verse 16, full of grace and truth. That's verse 14 and then verse 16 again. Or, yeah, 16 references that grace. Grace and truth are not things. They are a person. They're characteristics of a person. Grace is person-oriented. We, you've often heard me say, and I'm, I, because I'm, I'm learning it, repentance is person-oriented. In sin, we've drifted away from a person. We're returning to that person. Well, grace is that person. Grace brings us to a person. Everything that we need for the day is grace, and that grace is a person. And so repentance, we've drifted away from a person. Repentance, we're returning to that person. But grace is a person. It's Christ. And so when John, and I encourage you, go back. I told with doing Amazing Grace after the message so that you could do this, but I didn't. Go back and look at Amazing Grace, and instead of singing it through the lens of amazing stuff you've given to me, go back and put Christ in there. Amazing grace in Christ. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amazing Christ. Amazing fullness of grace in a person, Jesus Christ. Go, and now that song takes on a whole different dimension. That song now is about the fullness of Christ from start to finish. The Christian life is one of grace, not stuff, a person. The Christian life is a person. That's why the author of Hebrews says, we looking unto Jesus. Because that is the whole of the Christian life. It's person-oriented. And what John is telling us is that this person that's been given to us is full in his fullness we have received grace upon grace the person of christianity jesus christ he has no ignorance there's nothing he's lacking he's full he's never weak he's full He's he's never weary. He's full. He never runs out. He's full. He never runs dry. He's full. Christ is full. Grace is not stuff that every moment I'm using a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and tomorrow I need a fresh dose. You can't deplete fullness. It doesn't go anywhere. You take and it's still there. You you pour some out. You're used to seeing a fountain go down as you, you pour something out and then it has to be refilled. That's not Christ. The fullness of Christ, the fullness of grace is it's full. You keep pouring out and it stays full. It doesn't deplete. It doesn't minimize. It doesn't go down. There's no lack. What does that mean? Whatever you're going through, Christ is the answer. And he's got more than enough for whatever you need. There's enough of Christ for your every need, even in your darkest day. Christ is sufficient. Christ is what you need. Christ gives you what you need most. 
words just fail here. It's, it's, the fullness of Christ is just it's kind of an indescribable thing. I mean, we talk about fullness, and you can kind of picture it like I just did in like a, a canister, and it doesn't go, but you can't explore the full range of fullness. You, you can't map out boundaries, right? When you think about fullness, you think of, you, there's some container you think of, and you think, okay, it fills that container. But with Christ, there is no container. He's limitless. So his fullness, it just doesn't stop. It's up, down, down. It just, it's, it's everywhere. It doesn't stop. You can't map it out. You can't plumb the depths of it. You can't exhaust the supply of it. You can't reach the highness. You can't. It just, it is fullness. Grace upon grace. And he can't be anything but that. This is what Paul wrote in Colossians 2. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you, Paul says, have been filled in him. Listen to what one commentator says, F.F. Bruce. The abundance of divine glory and goodness which resides in Christ is an ocean from which all his people may draw without ever diminishing its content. What the followers of Christ draw from the ocean of divine fullness is what John talks about, grace upon grace. One wave of grace being constantly replaced by a fresh one. There's no limit to the supply of grace that is Jesus Christ. The fountain of living water never runs dry. The bread of life never runs out. The true vine never stops nourishing. The, the, the wisdom of God is never lacking in knowledge. Whatever you're going through, and you think, I wonder if, God sees things. I wonder if he's seeing. I wonder if he knows what I know. If he, I wonder if he feels what I'm feeling. And it's Stop and repent of a woefully inadequate view of Christ. He is full. There is no lack in him. The lack is in us. The lack is in our lack of, of belief in who this Christ is, in his fullness and the appropriation of his fullness to our daily needs. He is infinite drink. He is infinite food, infinite nourishment, infinite wisdom, infinite grace. Only a fool wouldn't trust him. Only a fool wouldn't appropriate who Christ is. Only a fool would day after day live in anxiety and worry and despair and hopelessness. When you have a fullness of Christ that is full of grace upon grace. And yet I'm chief of fools. You are too. The lack is not in Christ. The lack is in us. You see, Jesus is greater. Greater than your need this morning. My goodness, let's, let's, let's accumulate all of your needs in all of your lifetime. And Jesus is greater than every need you've ever had or ever will need. Let's take the accumulation of your needs of your family. Let's go out throughout, trace your family line all the way back. Let's take all of your family line, their need. It's not even a drop of Christ, the fullness of his grace. He is sufficient for all of it. 
And he pours out, John says, grace upon grace, lavishly. He's gracious and he's generous with that graciousness. Do we know the fullness of grace that is ours every day? Every moment of every day. Just like John Newton, who took inventory of his life and said the only explanation for where I am is amazing grace, amazing Christ. And the only hope that I have going forward is amazing grace, amazing Christ. Have we taken that inventory as well? To know the abundance of grace in Christ. That's the testimony of our lives. Our lives are full of needs. But verse 16 says, Yet from His fullness, we who believe by grace have received grace upon grace. He is enough. He's greater. Do we believe that? The grace of John the Baptist, the grace of our lives. Thirdly, the testimony of Moses. The testimony of of John the Baptist, the testimony of our lives, the testimony of Moses. Christ is greater than the prophet of the law. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. Now, when we're talking here about the testimony of Jesus, we're not talking about or excuse me, the testimony of Moses. We're not talking about Jesus is a better person than Moses is. We're talking about the ministry, the ministry of Moses. The ministry of Jesus was greater than the ministry of Moses. A contrast is being drawn here. What do we know about Moses? Hebrews chapter 3 calls Moses a servant in the house of the Lord. Now, Moses was a significant figure. God came to Moses... And, gave, it was, and used Moses, uh, he gave Moses the law, direction um, to lead God's people. He gave Moses the law, this is who your God is, this is how you're supposed to live unto your God. Moses was a significant figure in the household of God, a servant. But Christ was better. One commentator says, it would be wrong to think that John here is trying to set the New Testament as better than the Old Testament. Or to suggest there's some kind of antithesis between grace in the New Testament and law in the Old Testament. That's not what's taking place here. There was grace in the Old Testament. God meeting with Moses was sheer grace. Face to face with God, that was grace. There was grace. This is not law versus grace. The idea here is the manifestation of God. In the ministry of Moses, God revealed himself through the law. You can go through the Ten Commandments, you can go through the law, and they reveal the character of God. Why should you not kill? Well, not just because morally it's a good idea, but because God is life. To, to take life is, is, is antithetical to who God is, right? Um, the law reveals to us who God is. The law revealed to us 
attributes and characteristics of God. You could, you could read the law and you walk away. Well, this God is holy. This God is righteous. Uh, you, you learn the characteristics of God from the law. You know his standards. You know his rules. You know the rituals that people have to obey in order to please this God. But the law was for that purpose, to reveal to us God, to reveal to us His ways. And it also revealed to us that, like we talked this morning with our kids, we can't do it. We can't keep it. This is what God demands from His people. And though we may with our lips say all that the Lord has said we will do, we can't do it. The law was an instrument not of grace, but the law was an instrument teaching us of our need for grace. The law taught us who God is. It taught us we're not God because we can't keep his law, and we are in desperate need of forgiveness. We need grace. And this is why Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, therefore the law has become our tutor, our teacher. The law has become our teacher to lead us to Christ. Some of you are reading along with us J.C. Ryle's commentary. Those are still available if you'd like a copy of it. J.C. Ryle's commentary on the Gospel of John. And if you read prior today, you probably read this. The law was a schoolmaster. It could not make him that kept it perfect as pertaining to the conscience. The law laid a grievous yoke on men's hearts, which they were not able to bear. It was a ministration of death and condemnation. The light which men got from Moses and the law was at best only starlight compared to noonday. So what's he saying? The law had a purpose in the economy of God. To reveal God, to manifest God's character, His person, His holiness, His righteousness, and also to expose us. We are not God. We can't keep His law. So, John writes in verse 17, For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Christ, on the other hand, came in not as a servant in the household of God, like Moses, but as what? A son. A son. Not a servant in the household, a son with the keys to the house. <laughs> and the treasurer, if you will, of grace and truth. Why? Because he is grace. He is truth. He comes in, Jesus is grace. That's what the law reveals we need, and here comes what we need, not in stuff, but in a person, Jesus of Nazareth, who comes and makes God fully known through his life, where he obeyed the law perfectly for us, his death, where he took our sin and our punishment for us upon the cross, and his resurrection from the grave, signifying God's acceptance of his sacrifice for us. When Jesus came into the world, grace and truth came with him. Now, grace and truth was there in the day of Moses. But the fullness of grace and truth, the fullness of redemption in Jesus Christ came in Jesus. Grace in Jesus Christ. Truth in Jesus Christ. All that the Old Testament promised Christ would be. Christ truthfully was. All that the tabernacle and temple and the sacrificial system and the, uh, the priesthood and the Levitical system, all that those shadows, things foreshadowed who the Christ would be, Christ truthfully fulfilled those things. He was 
grace and truth. And there at the cross, we could say grace and truth shines brightest because he fulfilled perfectly all that the Father said he would be. So when we read verses 17 and 18, it's not that the law was bad and Christ is good. The idea here is the law is good. Christ is greater. The fullness of Christ, the fullness of grace and truth, he came to fulfill what the law, what couldn't be accomplished through the law. Christ is better. We've got to guard against the idea, Old Testament bad, New Testament good. Old Testament God angry, New Testament God gracious. That is not true. It's not one of bad and good. It's one of good and greater. And the idea here is that in the testimony of Moses, Jesus is greater than the wonder of Moses, that servant in the household of God, who revealed to us God through the law, who revealed to us God's standards. Jesus is greater because he made us acceptable by that God. Verse 18 goes on, no one has ever seen God. This is still under the testimony of Moses. Well, Moses saw God, sort of. He saw the afterglow of his back, not his face. Moses spoke to God, but it was a veiled revelation. Others in the Old Testament saw God, Isaiah, but it was just a vision. No one could see God completely unveiled and live until Jesus. Jesus is God. No one has ever seen God, verse 18, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. Made him known, the idea there is, a, there's, a, there's a word in, in uh, Bible translation called exegete, exegesis. To exegete something is to pull out the meaning of something. To exegete it is to, to understand something. Jesus makes God understandable, knowable. No one's ever seen God until they saw Jesus. If you've seen Jesus, Jesus will say you've seen the Father. Not that they're the same, but they are one in being. And so, again, we see Jesus is greater because he shows us the glory of God. These are the three testimonies that John closes out his prologue with the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of our lives, of our neediness, and the fullness of Christ, full of grace, full of truth for our every need, and the testimony of Moses. These are not the only witnesses, and I promise you, John has many more witnesses he's going to bring to our attention as we go through the book. But the purpose of these three testimonies is that you and I, right off the bat, would see and savor Jesus Christ as the greatest of all things. Whatever you want to try to compare Jesus to, whatever you're going to leave here today, and you're going to be tempted to think, listen, I agree with everything that was said. Jesus is great. But maybe this is greater. The testimony of these three is, woe to you if you want to test it. But Jesus is greater. So what are you filling your life with these days? 
Are you being filled from the fullness of Christ in His Word? Time spent with Christ here. Listen, again, it does kind of come back to some elementary basics. You, you don't know the fullness of Christ if you have not opened your Bible in the past week. Well, I mean, that's not a fair statement. If you haven't opened your Bible in a while, if you haven't opened it ever, you may know a lot of things about Christ because you've been around enough Christian people. You've learned stuff. You just osmosis. But you don't know the fullness grace upon grace. What are you filling your life with? Is it the fullness of Christ or something else? In Christ is the fullness of grace and truth. What else are you going to turn to? Well, listen, I can preach these things, but I promise you I need help doing them just like you do. And the fact is, we can't even take the first step in honoring Christ in this way without help. We need the Spirit's help. And so we close with this. You bowing your head, seeking just that. Lord, by Your grace, You've given me eyes to see the testimony of these, that Jesus is greater. Now would You help me to believe it, to live deeply and richly upon it, and to savor Christ more richly than I did even when I got here this morning, as I go out into the world, that Christ is greater.